If I were to ask you, what was the sermon about a year ago today, last Easter? Now, I know some of you would say, well, it was about the resurrection, right? We know that part. But if I were to say, what scripture did we look at last Easter? So you say, John, last Easter? Man, that's been a year. We've heard dozens of sermons since then. We've slept since then. Who can remember what the scripture was last Easter? Well, I want to refresh our memories. It was in Job chapter 19. I want to show you this verse on the screen today. And in verse 25, I built the whole Easter sermon last year around this verse. Job said, for I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. You think we could read that and say that together? Let's try it. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. Last year, we talked about the fact that in life, there are so many things we don't know, so many problems that are happening, and we don't understand them. And Job certainly had been through that in his life. But Job made this great declaration of faith. He said, in the midst of many things I do not know, there's one thing I do know. I know that my Redeemer lives. And that was last year's Easter sermon. Now, several weeks ago, I started thinking about this year's Easter sermon. Certainly, it's going to be on the resurrection. But I was thinking, Lord, what scripture verse would you have me to use to begin the sermon? And would you believe that I felt God leading me back to the book of Job. We're the only church in the world that spends time in Job on Easter, right? Because it's an Old Testament book. The resurrection's in the New Testament. But in Job chapter 14, I want you just to see this verse. This is not a declaration of Job's faith. This is a question, an honest question that Job had. Now remember, Job and his wife had lost all 10 of their kids. Can you imagine that? To be the parent of 10 children and to lose all of them. Well, that was their experience. And in Job chapter 14 and verse 14, Job asked this question to God. If a man dies, shall he live again? Job was wondering about his kids. Job was wondering about his wife. Job was wondering about himself. If a man dies... Shall he live again, or is that just it? That is a question that all of us have asked privately or maybe out loud at some point in our lives. In fact, this last week, I talked to nine families in our church who have just lost loved ones. Something has happened. Their loved one has died. And if you look at the ages of those who have died, it runs the gamut. It's a very broad range of ages. And certainly their question has been, if my husband dies, if my wife dies, if my child dies, if my mom or dad dies, if my brother dies, if my friend dies, if my loved one dies, will that person live again? Now, we know from Scripture that the answer to that question is yes. We know from the Old Testament and certainly from the New Testament that after a person dies, that person continues to live. In fact, the only thing that really dies is that person's body, but the person doesn't die. Remember this, bodies die, people don't die. Souls don't die, spirits don't die. We live forever. Now, the body's gonna die one day, but you and I will live forever. Now, having said that, if you'll turn to Luke chapter 23 in the New Testament, I want us to read an account of an experience that Jesus had while he was literally hanging and bleeding and dying on that cross. And in this experience, Jesus further answers that question. If a man dies... If a woman dies, if a person dies, will that person live again? Yes is the answer, but Jesus gives us even more details than that. Now, 
In Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 39, we read about Jesus dying on that cross. And you remember from your reading of the scriptures that as he was being crucified, two others were being crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus was on the center cross. These two men were criminals. They had done horrible things, and they were getting the, the, the punishment that they deserved. Jesus, of course, had done nothing wrong. He was dying for our sins. And so we pick up there in verse 39, and it says, Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed Jesus, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, that is this thief on one of the sides of Jesus, said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, in one of the other gospels, we read that at the beginning of the crucifixion, here's Jesus, here are these two thieves. Both of these men were criticizing Jesus. Both of these men were saying, if you're the Christ, get out off this cross and save us too. But as the hours went by, one of these thieves watched how Jesus was responding to everything he was going through and that Jesus was praying for God to forgive those who were crucifying him and for Jesus was saying all kinds of things. He was praying. He was exhibiting his faith in God. And this particular thief had a change of mind. He had a change of heart. He became convinced that Jesus Christ truly is the Son of God. And so here, as we've just read, he calls out to Jesus, he asked Jesus to forgive him, and asked Jesus to save him, and then Jesus gave this tremendous promise, assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, from that statement that Jesus made, I want to make three observations today about death. I want to answer Job's question more fully. If a man dies, will he live again? The answer is yes, but I want you to see this. We will live again immediately. Upon death, some of you have lost people that you love recently, and you can't help think about where are they? Are they in the grave, or what's going on with them? Well, the, Jesus teaches us that we'll live again immediately. Notice what Jesus said to this thief. Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, if you think about that, that's a very interesting thing Jesus said, because today was Friday. Jesus was being crucified on Friday, as were these others. Now, the resurrection didn't happen until Sunday. In Jewish culture, a part of a day equals a whole day. And so, when we always hear Jesus was, he, he was killed, he was buried, three days later, he rose from the dead. It was three days. Friday was part of a day, Saturday, and then part of the day Sunday. There's where you get the three days from. Jesus, you would expect it, could have said to this man, listen, you're about to die. I'm about to die. After we die, they're going to bury our bodies. But three days later, I'm going to, raise, I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to be resurrected. And after I've been resurrected, I'll raise you from the dead too. And so in three days, you'll be with me in paradise. Well, that would have made sense if that would have happened during the resurrection. You might would have expected Jesus to say to that thief, here's what's about to happen. You're going to die. I'm going to die. We're going to be buried. Three days later, I'm going to be resurrected. 
40 days after that, I'm going back to heaven. And before I go back to heaven, that's when I'll resurrect you and I'll take you to heaven and you can be with me forever in 43 days. Or you might have expected Jesus to say, here's what's going to happen. You're going to die. I'm going to die. You're going to be buried. I'm going to be buried. Three days later, I'm going to be raised from the dead. 40 days after that, I'm going back to heaven. And then one day out there somewhere, there's going to be the rapture of the church and a trumpet's going to sound and the shout of the voice of the archangel and the sky's going to split and I'm going to come back to the clouds and all those who are saved are going to be caught up to beat with me in the air and then we're going to heaven. You might have expected Jesus to say, one of these days you'll be with me in paradise, but that's not what Jesus said. Jesus did not say, in three days you'll be with me in paradise or in 43 days or one day. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying, before our bodies are taken down from these crosses, you and I will be together in heaven. You see, when we think about life after death, when we think about what happened in the empty tomb, we think that Jesus died on the cross and he was dead for three days and then he rose again on Easter. Friend, I want to be clear on this. The only thing that was dead was the body of Jesus. Jesus said to that thief, they're killing our bodies, but they can't touch our souls. Today, before this day's over, three days before the resurrection happens, you and I will be together in paradise forever. Now, As I think about that and the ramifications of that, what that says to me is we don't have to wait till the rapture of the church to go to heaven. We don't have to wait for the resurrection of the body for us to be in God's presence and for us to be in God's care. When a Christian dies, that person goes immediately to be with God in heaven. Bodies die, souls don't die. Bodies are mortal, souls are immortal. Bodies perish, souls don't. Souls live forever. And when we get to heaven, we will have, you say, what kind of, this, this raises a lot of questions. You say, well, if I thought when we got to heaven, we were going to have a resurrected body, and we are. And you say, but we don't get our resurrected body until the rapture of the church, and that's right. You say, yeah, but you said we're going to heaven as soon as we die before the rapture of the church, so what are we going to be like in heaven? Are we going to be disembodied spirits? Are we going to just be floating around up there? It is true that when, if I die today, I'll be immediately in a new body in heaven, but I will be not in my resurrected body. I will be, however, in a recognizable body. It is a real body. It just is not our permanent body or our final body. Now, turn back to chapter 16. I want to show you this, just expand on this a little more fully. In Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19, Jesus tells a story about two men who died. One was saved and one was unsaved. But from this story, we learn a tremendous amount about what happens when a person dies. Whether you're saved or unsaved, you're going somewhere immediately. Verse 19, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. That's just another way of describing heaven because we know Abraham is in heaven. The rich man also died 
and was buried. So when you read that he died and was buried, you say, well, that's it for him. No, it's not it. As his body was buried. Look in verse 23. And being in torments in Hades. Where is Hades? Hades is a place of suffering for those who have never been saved. It is not hell. It is where unsaved people go before they will be sentenced to hell. They will not be sentenced to hell until after the great white throne judgment. We've studied that in our study of Revelation. So when an unsaved person dies, they go immediately to Hades. And let's read the description Jesus gave. He lifted up his eyes and saw, he saw Abraham afar off and he saw Lazarus in his bosom. And so here you have this unsaved man in Hades, and yet he is able to look up into heaven, and he can recognize Abraham, and he can recognize Lazarus, and that says to me that when we get to heaven, we will have recognizable bodies. Verse 24, then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. You see, this man's body had been buried, but he wasn't dead. He was in Hades, and it's a place of horrible agony. And in verse 25, Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those pass from there to here. And so the rich man, the saved man and the unsaved man both died. Their bodies were buried, but that's the only thing that died because they didn't die. The saved man went to heaven and the unsaved man went to Hades. But in both places, they had recognizable bodies. And so that's what I'm saying. When you die, when I die, when our loved ones have died, immediately, they're not, they're not in a tomb. They're not in a grave. That's their bodies. Their soul is somewhere. And if they were saved, their soul is in heaven, in God's presence. And they are now in a recognizable body. They're walking. They're talking with each other. They're worshiping Jesus. They have hands. They have feet. They have a faith. They have a recognizable body. And I'll tell you something else about their bodies. Even right now, my grandparents, my loved ones in heaven right now, not only do they have a recognizable body, they have a perfect body. No disease, no pain, no sickness, no sadness, a perfect body. A few weeks ago when my dad was having his knee surgery, we were there in the little waiting room before they rolled him into the operating room and the surgeon came in and was telling him how the surgery was going to be. And he said to my dad, he said, do you have any questions before we, do, before we put you to sleep? And my dad said, I have one question. And he said, my question is, when this surgery is over, will my knee still be popping? Now, I thought that was a strange question to ask right before you went out. I mean, I like to ask my surgeon, when this surgery is over, do you promise to wake me up, you know? Am I going to be alive? But he wasn't worried about that. He said, doctor, when I stand up, when I, my knee hurts, it pops. He said, is the knee going to still be popping? He said, your knee's not going to be popping after this surgery. And my dad said to him, he was questioning this. He said, well, how do you know that it's not going to pop? And the doctor said, because the thing that's popping is coming out. I'm giving you a brand new knee. But I want to tell you something. When we get to heaven, we get new knees, new eyes, new ears, new brains, new hearts, new organs. We are in a perfect body. We'll never know sickness or pain again. 
And that's what your loved one is experiencing in heaven today. When he died, when she died, they went immediately and received a brand new body, a recognizable body. So yes, in answer to Job's question, if a man dies, will he live again? Yes, Job, we will, and we'll live again immediately. But not only that, notice this, we'll live again in heaven. We'll live again in heaven. Look again at verse 43. From Jesus' statement, it is loaded with gospel truth. He said, assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, what did Jesus mean by paradise? What is paradise? Where is paradise? Paradise is another name for heaven. In Revelation chapter 2, we read that heaven is described as the paradise of God. I want to show you this verse out of 2 Corinthians, or these several verses out of 2 Corinthians. Paul is talking about an experience he had where he went to heaven. And it happened many years previous. He didn't know if he went to heaven in a dream or a vision, or he didn't know if God had taken his body to heaven. He didn't know all that. But notice how he describes it. He said, I know a man in Christ, he's talking about himself, who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up, now watch this, to the third heaven. And he said, I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. And so Paul here uses two different descriptions of what we would call heaven. First of all, he says, it's the third heaven. Now, what is that? I mean, if there's a third heaven, that means there has to be a first and a second heaven, right? And you can't have a third without a first and a second. So what is the first heaven? The first heaven is what we might call the, the atmospheric level. The first heaven is where the birds fly. The second heaven is higher up than that, what we would call outer space. The third heaven is where the stars shine. And the third heaven, Paul shows us here, he calls this place paradise, is the place where God lives. Now think about that. The first heaven, where the birds fly. The second heaven, where the stars shine. The third heaven, where God lives. One of my favorite pastors said it this way, we see the first heaven by day, we see the second heaven by night, and we see the third heaven by faith. It is that place where God lives, and it is the place where Jesus said to that thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. Friend, I want to remind you today, paradise, heaven, is not a figment of the imagination. It's not a thought. It's not a peaceful, you know, dream or something like that. Heaven, the Bible says, Jesus said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. At the moment of death for a Christian, Jesus, whether it's in a hospital or a nursing home or some other place, Jesus comes to that place where we are. And we just read in Luke 16, the angels are with him. And what does Jesus do? Jesus takes our spirit. He takes our soul. He takes the real us right out of our body, and he takes us into heaven, and he presents us before God the Father. Heaven is a place. Now, remember this. You still listening? Say amen. Remember this. Just like when we get to heaven, we have perfect bodies. Remember, when we get to heaven, we're in a perfect place. And the Bible describes this place as a city. I like that the Bible gives these words, the descriptive words that we can relate to. Just like Pasadena is a city, 
Deer Park and Laporte and Houston and Dallas, San Antonio. We're very familiar with cities. God says, I want you to understand this about heaven. Heaven is a city. Just like you have cities on earth, heaven is a city in heaven. You can't, you look up but can't see it. We see it by faith. But in that city, there are places for us to live. In that city, there's fruit for us to eat. In that city, there's a river of water of life flowing from the throne of God. In that city, there are streets of gold. In that city, there, there are gates of uh, Jasper and, and, and there's, there's pearl. I mean, it is absolutely beautiful. Walls of Jasper, gates of pearl is an absolutely beautiful place, but it is a perfect place. In our cities, we have potholes, right? <laughs> but in that city, they have streets of gold. No potholes. In our cities, we have hospitals. I've been in the medical center several times in the last few weeks, and every time I'm in the medical center, I see all these hospitals Dozens of hospitals, hundreds of cars, parking garages full, thousands of people in these hospitals, thousands more visiting their family and friends in their hospitals. The people there are sick, they're suffering, they're dying. But I'm reminded when we get to our new heaven, when we get to our new city, to that place called heaven, there is no suffering, there is no sickness, there are no hospitals, there are no funeral homes, there are no cemeteries, there are no graveyards, there is no dying. The former things will have passed away. Those things aren't there anymore. I'll tell you something else. If that got you excited, this ought to really make you excited. When we get to our new city, there'll be no political fighting going on anymore. You know, these cities down here, our nation is being divided by political fighting. Friends are being ostracized from friends over political fighting. In some cases, families are being divided over political issues. If you don't see this issue the way I see this issue, then you and I can't be friends. We live in a democracy. Really, it's a representative democracy. We represent people and they go vote for us. We don't vote on all the issues. We vote on the people and they vote on the issues. And a democracy is the greatest form of government that you can have on earth. But I've got good news. When we get to our new city, when we get to paradise, the third heaven, when we get to the place where God lives, it is no longer a democracy. It is a theocracy, and God's not having to ask anybody else what he ought to do. God's running the show, and God's calling all the shots up there. We're headed from a democracy to a theocracy. Somebody asked a presidential candidate over 50 years ago, said to this man, why do you want to be president of the United States? And he said, because that's where the power is. And there's a sense that that's true for four years or maybe eight years till the next person comes along and undoes most of what you did, right? You, you have power for a limited amount of time. You have limited power for a limited amount of time. But friend, in heaven, God has unlimited power for an unlimited amount of time. We talk about a president being the most powerful man on earth. Compare that to God who is the maker of heaven and earth. And so we're going to a place that is absolutely perfect in every single way. And not only that, we'll live again in heaven. Job said, if a man dies, will he live again? Yes, Job. We'll live again immediately. We'll live again in heaven, but we'll also live again with Jesus. Notice verse 43 again. Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's not just that we're going to live again immediately. And it's not just that we're going to live again in heaven, as great as that will be, a perfect body in a perfect place. But for the first time in our lives, we will have perfect, unbroken fellowship with Jesus Christ. 
And Jesus is the best part of heaven. And so when I read this, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. With me is the most important part of that sentence. As I said a moment ago, whether you're saved or unsaved, when your body dies, you will live again immediately. The saved in heaven, the unsaved in Hades until they go to hell, the saved with Jesus, the unsaved separated from God for all eternity. And the question is, which group are you in? You know, several weeks ago, I always try to think of my sermons in advance and read and pray and study, but there's just something about Easter that's extra special. And so I started thinking about this sermon several weeks ago and felt like that I was going to preach another sermon today. And then last Monday, I felt like God led me to Job's question, if a man dies, will he live again? And then to what Jesus said to the thief, assuredly, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. I felt like God said, deal with that, John. That's, that's what you need to preach on Easter. So I started working on the sermon and working through all the different parts of the sermon. You know, someone has said, and I think they're right, I know you would agree with this, the secret to a good sermon is to have a good introduction, a good conclusion, and to make sure those things are very close together, right? So the sermon doesn't go on forever. That's a challenge. Have an introduction that gets people's attention and their interest. To have a development of the sermon that explains the text and illustrates it, applies it, keep their interest, and have something at the end, an action step. In light of what we've heard, what do we do now? Maybe a a step to take or maybe just what you would call the takeaway from the sermon. So I started thinking, God, what is the way to wrap it up? What is the takeaway for the sermon on Easter? And I had two stories that came to my mind, and I thought, man, either one, both of those would be great, but I knew I couldn't tell them both because then the introduction and the conclusion wouldn't be close together, right? I thought I could only do one. And I thought, well, one of the stories is something I heard another preacher say. It's a tremendous story. And one of these days, I want to come back and tell that story. But the other story I thought about is not something I heard. It's something I have experienced myself. It's something I have lived based on Luke 23, the thief on the cross. And I want to just take just a couple of three minutes here and share this, and then we're going to stop. But I'm sharing this today. I'm sharing what I've lived, not what I heard, because... First of all, I thought that's what God leading me to do, but I think if I'll share this today, it may resonate with maybe one or two, or like Dad said in the first service, there were 15 or 20 people that got saved, and maybe that'll happen in this service. I certainly hope so. In fact, I got back to my office between services, and I had a text from a professional chef, and he said, John, I was watching the service at home, and when you got to the end and you told your story, He said, it spoke to my heart and God applied it to my own life. And he said, I began to have tears in my eyes and I prayed that prayer with you. And he said, as soon as I prayed that prayer with you, a peace has come over me that I can't explain. This happened in the last hour and a half. As best as I can understand, and I've told some of this before, so I'll just even condense this. As best as I can understand my own testimony, I really believe with all my heart that I was saved when I was seven years old as a child. I can still remember being in a children's hot dog supper in East Tennessee when the guest preacher came and he was talking to all of us young kids about how to become a Christian. I was sitting on a table by a wall and I can still remember the conviction of the Holy Spirit that I felt that day. I went home that night after church. I shared that with my parents. That was when I prayed and asked Jesus to come into my heart and I really believe that's when I got saved. But when I got to be a teenager and then beyond that, 
I had a lot of doubts about that experience, and here was my reason for having doubts. And I'll share this today because this may help somebody. I had doubts because I was not able to remember all the specific details of that experience. I remembered what I just told you, but I couldn't remember much more than just that. And so I had doubts. I would look back on my experience, and since my memories were sketchy, my assurance was sketchy. It's a good time for me to say here, we thank God for what we can remember, but the assurance of your salvation is not based on what you can remember. The assurance of your salvation is based on whether or not you're trusting Jesus to save you. Or else when we get old, if we lose our memories, we pray we don't, but if we do, then we would lose our assurance. So you can't pace your assurance on what you can remember. But that bothered me for a long time. And so I said, I've got to have an experience that I can remember. And I had one. And it was real and it was genuine and I meant it. And I thought I had it settled. The only problem was is I went from that experience since now I had an experience that I could remember unknowingly, I put my faith in that experience. And I would be in church and the preacher would say, do you know for sure that you're saved? And in my mind, I went back to an experience and I said, I know I'm saved because I can now remember this experience. Say, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that is I went on from that as I, as I was anchoring my faith in that experience, it became clear to me that that experience wasn't perfect. I'm not perfect. I don't do anything perfectly. I don't pray perfectly, repent perfectly, believe perfectly, do anything perfectly. And I look back on that experience and I thought, now during that experience, did my mind wander when I was praying? Did I really repent thoroughly? Did I really mean, was my faith pure faith? And so I'm now analyzing my repentance, my faith and my prayer. And I said, no, I didn't do it perfectly. I've got to have another experience where I do it just right. And that happened, I struggled with that for a long time. I never really had the full assurance on that. Many years ago, my dad was sharing after work one day. Uh, he said, John, I want to talk to you. He said, we were down in the church offices and um, he, everybody had gone home. It was on a Tuesday afternoon. He said, hey, I'm preaching back in East Texas this next weekend. And I want to preach a sermon out of Luke 23 on the thief on the cross. He said, sit down here with me and let, let me kind of walk through this sermon with you. Preachers like to do that. And say, how do you like this illustration? What do you think I could say to make this point more clear and so on? So he's just giving me the sermon. I don't remember the points or the outline, but I remember the message. He said, John, what I want to say when I preach this sermon on Sunday is this. The reason the thief got saved is because the thief did the only thing he could do. He came to Jesus as a sinner. Now think about that. He said, the thief, there were so many things he could not do. He could not join a church. He could not be baptized. He couldn't tithe. He couldn't help poor people. He couldn't be good to people. He couldn't live out the Sermon on the Mount. This man was dying. And yet he recognized his own sinfulness. And with his own words and in his own prayer, he came to Jesus and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He was saying, forgive me, save me. And my dad was saying, John, this is going to be my whole sermon. That's all any of us can do. We have to come to Jesus as a sinner. And my mind went back and I thought, when I was seven, I felt the Holy Spirit convicting me of my sin. And I thought as he was telling me this story, I'm now feeling that same conviction all over again. And we don't get saved by coming to Jesus with a perfect prayer or offering up to Jesus a perfect salvation experience. We come to Jesus as a sinner seeking his forgiveness. 
As the old song says, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Clothe me in thy righteousness. And I'm thinking, we come as a sinner. I've been trying to offer up to God a perfect prayer where my mind didn't wander and my repentance was thorough and my faith was, I've been, but no, I can't, I can't have a perfect experience because I'm not a perfect person. And he walked out of the office where we were in and in fact, this has been 18 years ago this month. It was on April the 27th in 2004 when this happened. I thought about that for a few minutes. I went in his office. I said, Dad, you know, we've talked on and off about this salvation and me struggling and am I saved or not saved? I, I said, but when we were having this conversation, that thing about coming to Jesus as a sinner really spoke to me, and that's what I need to do. He said, what do you want to do, John? I said, I want to come to Jesus as a sinner and just make sure that I'm saved, not by offering up a perfect prayer, but by coming as a sinner, asking him to forgive me. We got down on our knees, and I prayed, and I got that settled. And and really, for the first time in my life, I just began to feel in that moment a river of peace flowing through me. It wasn't long after that experience. I'll, I'll, take, this, I'll take this illustration one step further because this might help. It wasn't too long after that experience that I started thinking, well, which one was it? Was it when I was seven, which is when I think it was, or was it just now? And so that's my tendency to try to hook back onto an experience, kind of like a, a cathexis where you're hooked onto something. And I remember one night God said, John, it doesn't matter if it was here or here. Don't look to an experience. Look to Jesus. And I looked to him that night, and I said to him, thank thank." I said to him, I said, Lord, I have asked you to save me, and I'm trusting you to do it. And I'm just telling you my testimony. Ever since then, this river of peace has been flowing through my heart. I've been through a lot of things even since that situation happened. But through it all, I'll tell you what I've had. I've had a river of peace. When I transferred my faith From my experience to the person of Jesus Christ, my life changed. And I'm saying to you today, I know that I'm not the only one who has struggled with this. I know that. You know, the old old song says, my faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me doth plead. If I should die today, I would be in heaven before my body hit the ground. And if God should say to me, John, why should I let you in? I would say, because with all of my heart, I'm trusting Jesus. I came to him. As, listen, your heart, your faith is like, the, is like the needle on a compass. And it'll always be restless until it is pointing due north. For those of us who believe the Bible, this is true for everybody. Jesus Christ is our due north. And today, our true north, today, if you do not know for sure that Jesus Christ is living in your heart, maybe you're like me, say, John, I think I was saved back then, but boy, I'm kind of like you. I've, I pray that prayer so, so often. God spoke to me one day, said, John, the fact that you keep asking me into your heart over and over and over and over again is an indication that you're not really trusting me. Because if you were trusting me, you wouldn't keep asking me. You would just trust me to do it. I'm encouraging you today. Do what I did. Do what this thief did. Come to Jesus as a sinner. Ask him to save you. Trust him to do it. And let his peace fill your heart on this Easter Sunday morning. Amen.